You're listening to a podcast by the Center for Action and Contemplation. To learn more, visit cac.org. Don't cry, Paul. Don't cry for me, Paul. I was trying to make that sound like don't cry for me, Argentina. I knew immediately what you meant, but like your cadence should have been like, don't cry for me, Paul. I should have tried to sell it. We have reached the end of an amazing podcast journey through five seasons, two years with you, me, and Richard. And it's obviously very bittersweet for us to be gathering for one final time, having to do it online. And uh, this final episode really felt like a reflection of the journey that we've gone on. How, how did it hit you to sit here in our, our last time on Another Name for Everything? Well, I'm exceptionally proud of myself for only tearing up once because <laughs> I think I've been uh, emotional thinking about this moment for, you know, over the last several weeks as we've been recording and kind of seeing the end in sight. Um, you know, goodbyes are hard. Mm-hmm. It's hard to let go of, of uh, seasons with particular members of a community. And I think... Um, this journey for us has been a really special one, especially for you and I, Paul, because seeing ourselves as, as students of the path, students of Richard's work, and being able to journey over the last two years, uh, not just on this podcast, but as friends and really digging yeah. into this work together and seeing how how we were trying to integrate this in our lives, asking each other the questions. Yeah. I mean, in many ways, every time you and I would hop on to prep for these podcasts. It was its own kind of like <laughs> podcast. Mm-hmm. And I feel so grateful, you know, that we had this opportunity to serve our community in this way. And I really enjoyed uh, being able to go back retrospectively in this in this episode and talk about season one and season two and how Richard dropped Latin phrases in season three. <laughs> <laughs> It was yeah, kind of like going through was, a yearbook of like, remember the yeah. first year when we did this? And yeah, it, it was, it was a joy to, to, to hold that space for a retrospection. And um, I mean, what a, what a huge gift. Uh, I'm so grateful for you and for Richard. And I think the way that we've had the space to examine some of the most heartfelt questions for us as we seek to move deeper and deeper into wholeness in the contemplative heart uh, has been a, a real privilege. And what a gift to share this with so many listening from home who are also doing this work in their their own contexts and own locations. And mm. that this this season has hopefully provided some some fodder and some and some guidance. because uh, I know that we've received that from the community in our own lives. Mm-hmm. And that this journey isn't over for anyone, that it's gonna continue in in just a different configuration. Yeah, yeah. I think that's been one of the most humbling things about being a part of this podcast is hearing from the members of our community mm. what random story that you or I shared that helped bring Richard's teaching into further light, into further integration. And yeah, I mean, you and I talk a lot about how we really didn't uh, set out to become um you know, members of this conversation as if we had something to offer. We Mm. mostly were just obsessed with Richard's teaching and wanted to (laughs) talk about it and geek out about it. But, you know, I want to say, Paul, 
you know, your vulnerability, your ability to hold space, your willingness to ask questions tenderly, I think also invited me to do the same thing. And I want to, I want to just say how grateful I am to you um, as a friend, but as a partner in this project mm. that you uh, so tenderly held space for these deeper questions and that that's just a, that's a marker of your character. That's how you are. That's how you are in everyday life. Um, so thank you for, for, for the posts that you've held on this journey and for the ways in which you made room for me uh, to ask deeper questions and to be more vulnerable as well. Okay, make me all verklempt. I sprung that one on you. You did, you did. I mean, <laughs> but it's it's the reciprocal nature, I think, of our friendship. And I think when we're both trying to hold and bear this contemplative heart, um, I mean, that that's a gift that goes back and forth. As I, I, I know I feel like you, to me, are the leader in that vulnerability of stepping into the places that are the unknown and, um, and seeking to... Uh, to bow before mystery and uh, to hold creativity in that space so that you can do the work that you are called to do from the stance and posture of humble love uh, has been a gift to me. I know it's been a gift to Richard and to the listening community as uh, they get the chance to get to know you as you are because that's one of my favorite things. Like, as you are on this podcast is as you are. You're just... <laughs> Holy, just a holy shit show <laughs> <laughs> i was gonna say you're holding that sacred heart out there but if you want to uh, throw it on yeah, that way it's out there it's just it's it's out there it's just there it's out there in flames <laughs> oh thanks paul i think um another thing i really appreciated about this episode was the chance to ask richard about you know how he wants us to live into yeah. his legacy and his teaching and to even you know tenderly ask you know, what about when you're gone, Richard? Like, what do, how do you want us to honor you then? And I thought it was really powerful to hear him reflect on, um, you know, just his, his constant humility to not make it about himself yeah. or even about the CAC, but the ways in which he's really encouraging us to, to live into this and embody it in, in new creative ways and to keep it going. Yeah. That, this work is bigger than the CAC. It's bigger than this podcast. It's bigger than any one institution. That this is this is the incarnational work of all of us to carry to carry the message of the universal Christ in our hearts and our minds and our souls as we go about our daily lives. Um, and we're happy to be collaborators with all of you listening in this work of the universal Christ. Mm. So with that, please enjoy this final episode of Another Name for Everything. Before we get started, uh, could we could we pray really quick? Loving one, um, we're so grateful for the journey of the last two years, for the privilege of serving our broader community in this way, um, for Paul and I to serve Richard and his work in this way. Um, thank you that you are the God of new beginnings in the midst of every ending. Um, and uh, that you make so much more out of what we offer each other in love and offer the world in love. And we're so grateful for the depth and the meaning and the hope that you weave in and through us. We ask that you guide our words, that you 
allow our hearts to be present to one another in this final episode. We are so thankful. Amen. 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 Those evangelicals, they know how to pray. (laughs) Hallelujah. Okay. (laughs) Um, So, Richard, it is wild to think that we started this journey almost exactly two years ago. It was February 24th, 2019, that our first episode aired. And your book had come out, and Richard, you felt pretty certain that this was going to be your last book. I did. We recorded this in the midst of uh, some pretty aggressive cancer treatment. I I remember, you know, we really had no idea how much time we were going to have together with you. And we gathered in the small hermitage on the grounds of the CAC, and it was full peacock season. I don't know if you remember that. I certainly do, because I had never heard sounds like that in my entire life. And we discussed the different chapters of your book, hoping that we could dive into these themes and ideas one last time together. Um, so I just kind of want to begin by just bringing us back to that that first moment when we came together and recognizing how much things have changed with your health, um, with all of us, and just to to begin by bringing us to that that point when we began. That really helps. How much can change in two years, huh? Yeah, it feels like a different world in so many ways. Yeah, thank you for putting that in context. I remember on that first season, um, what was so helpful as we began this journey of, of discussing these themes from your book, The Universal Christ, was distinguishing between Jesus and Christ, the cozy and the cosmic, as Paul would say. It was as if we finally had this framework to make sense out of how we could embrace the best out of Christianity, you know, to have Jesus as the central reference point, but leave behind the institutional crap, right? And have a cosmic frame for Christ in which we could appreciate and move fluidly between all faith traditions. Paul, what what stands out for you about that first season? I, it's such a rich memory to go back and and think about that uh, those first footsteps into podcasting for uh, the CAC, and I'm just realizing too the bookends right of the Richard's book coming out then and now the paperback version coming out of the Universal Christ. It's kind of wild that we're being held by these two bookends. Um, but the question that comes to me to mind, Richard, when I think about that first season. Is this theme that I think both Brie and I have so appreciated of the Christ-soaked world. And that was one of the first questions we asked you was, what does the Christ-soaked world mean to you? And so, here we are closing out this podcast. And I want to ask that again in the midst of a pandemic, in the midst of growing consciousness in the world and social uprisings. How would you respond to the question, where, what does a Christ-soaked world mean to you today? What um, comes to mind today, uh, I think it's the best way I know how to say it, is that there is an inherent dignity to everything. That dignity is not applied by me or you or the American Constitution. <laughs> it's previous to all of that. Uh, and just once you have inherent dignity, um, 
you have to live a very different kind of life, it would seem. I watched uh, the couple weeks on the Black Church on PBS the, the last week, or was it this week, whenever. Uh, and I kept hearing that word come up, how Black people so feel that constantly their dignity was taken from them. And what the gospel was meant to do was to put it in there in such a way that no one could take it away. The, the main subterfuge we had was that good, uh, bad behavior took it away. You see, it, it sounds reasonable, but then that leaves up to us the uh, decision who's operating with bad behavior and what is bad behavior. And then you see it's defined very differently from culture to culture. And it always happens to be the behavior of another group. Huh? Yeah. So remember that, uh, that old schema that we learned from Ken Wilber, cleaning up, exporting dirt elsewhere, any kind of dirt, even saying pigs are dirty. Uh, don't go there. Don't go there because once you start on that path that this is dirty and this is not dirty, it, it seems to never stop. So uh, I, I, I can't live any other way in this universe. And at this time where we landed on Mars and we're driving a little car around Mars, the big universe... <laughs> is becoming ever closer and even mars is sacred even though it took us billions of years to get there huh That's so we so don't wild we don't uh, administer the sacred we uncover it we discover it we honor it that, that gives a very different frame to religion oh. very different yeah. Uh, yeah, no. that's that's a that's a huge foundational huge. shift. And that's I right. you know, even before we started this podcast, I remember as a student in the living school, you know, really to to be baptized into this concept of originally good. I mean, it was it was such a radical shift for me to believe, to practice the sight that could see Christ in everything, but also in myself even. Yes. You know, there was, there's so much shame that we've received in, in a lot of unhealthy religious upbringing. And I think that shame has turned into a blame game in our politics and in our society because we are unable to see ourselves as whole, therefore we dissect everybody else. Because we're unable to accept ourselves as holy, we therefore judge and declare unholy, unworthy, the bodies of others. And I'm so glad that you brought up this idea, Richard, of of inherent dignity. Um, I'm, a, I'm a really big fan of Donna Hicks. Uh, she's written a lot of work, uh, or a lot of her work has, is written about this idea of inherent dignity, of practicing dignity. And I find this to be a really compatible practice, civic practice, for those of us who are contemplatively um, practicing or wanting to practice these ideas of the universal Christ. And I just can't help but think about what would our society look like 
if we actually believed what you just said, if we actually if we, believed, yeah, yes. if we actually practiced, yeah, di- th- to treat each other with that inherent dignity, what would our world look like? What a different world! I was watching on a newscast the recently released uh, film that they warned us against watching on the evening news of uh, the victims of Syrian torture. Mm. Eyes gouged out, Mm. eyes gouged out, Mm. rows of little children bleeding all over. How did humanity get to this, that we could do this? Syria, where one of the oldest places where Christianity found a foundation, and it's had such little effect on so many people. It's just, it breaks your heart. Yeah. Breaks your heart. How are we going to ever get out of this inclination toward judgment and hatred and really sadism? (laughs) At least when I see that, my goodness, how would allow a human being to do that to another human being where all dignity is withdrawn and hatred is held on to? Mm-hmm. Boy, we got our work to do. Yeah, and I think, um, you know, we can really see examples of that in the past year. The ways in which contempt is, is uh, you know, the Trojan horse for violence, really. And, and how subtle contempt is. How it can sneak in and take root in our hearts, you know. Even just with social media, it's like, oh, how could they? I cannot believe these people. You know, that energy. If we're not mindful, if we're not paying attention to how that begins to feed a worldview that doesn't treat people with inherent dignity, um, man, I think you're right. We end up in this, in this sort of sadistic, violent frame and uh, the justification of that violence. You can see why we've made God, a loving God, hard to believe in for Mm. so many people. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And this brings to mind to me of chapter five in the years of Christ of love is the meaning. But that's, that's been a chapter that I've gone back to during this time. And Particularly, you know, I think the way you kick it off with the the Julian of Norwich quote, which I want to just read real quick and then ask you a question about it, where Julian says, Know it well. Love is its meaning. Who reveals this to you? Love. What does he reveal? Love. Why? For love. Remain in this and you will know more of the same. So, yeah, those words are just drop in your heart and expand it dynamite it's, dynamite yeah and i feel like that connects to that inherent dignity of how uh one can should approach um finding meaning in life as a participant and i'm wondering you know it's it's this very different uh angle of love than like say the gooey love of romantic comedies where it's all feel good there's there's i've heard you speak l- lately around uh the hard the hard edges of love and how love is um, love in the midst of suffering takes on uh, a new way of being, and especially you know as we talk about the the tragic absurdity of reality. So I know that a lot of folks who are listening to this have read the book, 
and are trying to find ways to practice or looking for action on how to live with love as the meaning from that place of inherent dignity. Do you have any practices or actions that you could recommend that folks might take to expand their own experience of love of themselves to go out into the world and kind of further their own agency in love? This comes to me first. I don't know that it's the best answer at all, but I think we all have to keep an eye on when we give ourselves excuse not to love. And it's always for a righteous answer. It's always for, well, this isn't politically correct. (laughs) I can cancel this person uh, because now my hatred, my ill will, my vengeance is justified. In fact, I have to do it uh, to be just. I have to be unloving to be just. Hear that? This is common today, uh, where, okay, yes, people must make amends, people must be accountable, that's all true. But when you can feel the energy of the person who is demanding it, it's too often a desire to punish. And as you've heard me say before, when we made God the Punisher-in-Chief, I'm afraid it just took away the cover from punishment. It made it uh, appear uh, necessary and even good. Or, no, I should say it it covered it up, not took away the cover. Whatever it is, it... um, I'm amazed at the human need to punish other people for what I judge is inadequate behavior, (laughs) according to my recent criteria. And as you've also heard me say, that's as true on the left as on the right. Richard, I'm so glad that you brought this up because it seems to be the conversation that most people are swimming in and wanting to talk about right now, which is how do we find, how do we find accountability without contempt? How how do we, how do we protect community? You know, how, how do we seek justice without that violence that's trying to cancel? You know, uh, the Chinese are wise enough to speak of chi, the energy And uh, I wonder if it isn't a major part of the growth in the spirit that you learn very quickly. No, not very quickly, but uh, you learn soon enough to discern what the chi is in a statement. Uh, That two people can say the exact same thing, and in one, the energy, let's just trans laid it as energy. In one, the chi is, is positive, is caring. The, the very tone of the voice will be different. And the other one uses the same phrase, and the tone is harsh and, and um, aggressive, uh, brooking no disagreement. That's why it's so hard to, to make... Um, quick judgments or good judgments, 
because you got to go to the deeper level. What's really going on here? Is this the spirit of Christ or is this the spirit of, of something else? And you can feel when the love is dominant. It's got a, a kindness to it. We'll use all of Paul's adjectives. You know, it's patient. It, it um, takes no offense. Why, why haven't we gotten that? I'm reminded of um, <laughs> good Baptist girl moment here, but I'm reminded of, of King Solomon. You know, the examples of, of just wisdom and the recognition, I think, that our culture assumes that intelligence is the same thing as wisdom. That's right. And it is, and it is not. No. You know, and so we can be very intelligent and have all the facts and think we know everything. But it seems to me that what you're saying, Richard, is it's only a heart filled, like a heart, yeah. a, a, a centered heart filled with wisdom that can really discern what's happening and then to seek justice in a way that is loving for all um, without canceling, you know, the quote unquote aggressor or, you know, it's, it's, it seems to be an entirely different consciousness in, yes. in seeking justice. I wonder, and I just thought of this while you were talking, I wonder if the heart can't, can't really hold hatred. And so that's why we, we try to hide in the head. The head can hold hatred for years. And it seems the body can too, which is what the sadist is, that the very embodiment wants to punish. But the heart, it, it, it closes down if you try to uh, bury hatred there. It's not a heart anymore. It's scoliosis or something. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's that's really I mean that is so helpful though and as we're sitting in you know going through this journey in this episode this retrospective what you're talking about about the heart um reminds me of season 2 because we got to hear directly from the hearts of so many in our community and and they were and you know so many of the questions we got were wrestling with this question Maybe not this question exactly, but it was how do we, you know, what is non-duality in relationships and in community? Um, you know, how do we discern? How do we, how do we deal with healthy boundaries when we have parents who are, you know, proselytizing us? And you know, how how do we decide or de or determine if we need to leave a relationship or a marriage? How do we know when we should stay in a community or you know? you know, stay on the edge of the inside of a community or leave. And I felt like in that season, we were able to dive in together into a lot of the nitty gritty, messy um, choice making and decisions of relationships. Uh, a spiritual director once said to me that in discernment, I should ask, what is the most loving thing for this person slash community and myself? Yeah. And I, f I find that to be really challenging because sometimes it's really easy to think about what's the most loving thing for me. Sometimes it's also really easy to say, what's the most loving thing for them? But to find that middle ground where love is expansively touching both. through both. Uh, yeah. Uh, what do you think of that, Richard? My, it's such a high bar, but it is the bar. Uh, 
What is the most loving thing I can do now for all concerned? Which is why you can't come to a quick resolution usually, but it it might mean, as you seem to allude, uh, when you can no longer separate yourself uh, from the malice, from the negative energy of another person, I'm not sure it isn't the higher moral response to separate, um, especially if children are involved. Yeah. But we weren't told that, told that in the black and white morality most of us were raised in. And I saw too many women especially, some men too, it isn't always women, but what's always destroyed is children. To live in an energy of love, you know, ping-ponging, of hatred, ping-ponging back and forth in the kitchen, in the living room every day. That child is going to be raised inside of post-traumatic stress disorder, if that doesn't seem like an overstatement. Yeah, so how do we get people to, to seek love above all else when their whole heart is still filled with post-traumatic stress disorder mm-hmm. and they're trying to get rid of it? So you have to have sympathy for them because no one, this follows from our first thing of inherent dignity, inherent goodness. They didn't get hateful except somehow living inside of hate energy for a period of time. They weren't born that way. They weren't born that way. And that gives us all the courage to, to keep loving people. What is the wound? that made this person so whatever. I think, too, what's so helpful then with that in mind, Richard, is that, and we did, we talked a lot about this on season two, but I'm just, I'm just realizing what a crucial conversation this is because you can have boundaries. And in fact, boundaries can be the most loving thing. Yes. And we got so much, you know, mail from people after that season because it was the first time they had heard kind of in dialogue from a Christian institution talking about divorce, talking about what do we do when my parents and I don't believe the same things. And I think a lot of people found that deeply liberating that, you know, you can we can treat each other with that inherent dignity and learn what healthy boundaries look like. And that feels like a new new way of living in and with love. Very good. Good fences make good neighbors. And what I'm uh, pleased by, just in my smaller world, uh, the amount of, of separated couples I know who are still good friends, and I mean that, really good friends, I'd much rather have that negotiated than sticking together and sniping it at yeah. one another all day. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's a beautiful thing. I think when when folks can stay in that space and that love can yes. can be carried out in a, in a different orientation than than previously. Um, and speaking of love, um, you know, Bree and I 
have had such a, a joy and we have, we just love questions and we love asking you questions. And within season two, it was really fun to have listeners get a chance to ask you questions and us questions that were stirring their heart. And as Bree said, some of the most challenging, difficult questions in their lives they were raising. So Richard, um, as someone who people often approach for wisdom with their perplexing life questions, and knowing that you're an ongoing student of life, who do you take your most perplexing questions to? Wow. Like if we take ours to you, <laughs> where do you go when you have questions that are, are, are stirring you? Well, this is going to sound so evangelical. <laughs> See, I'm not Catholic at all. I honestly, I mean, where is my Bible? It's over here on my drum in front of my chair. At this stage of my life, I go waiting for an inspired verse, and it almost always comes. Almost always comes. Sometimes I have to page for a while. It isn't always the first verse I open to. Um, yeah, my mo most perplexing are the Bible and uh, the writings of holy people. Mm. Mm -hmm. You're an evangelical in a brown robe. Really. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, I know that that hasn't always served everybody well, so I say it with some mm. uh, trepidation. But, uh, yeah, I think I go to the Bible now. Mm. It's so beautiful. Uh, warms warms my evangelical heart, I must say, uh, <laughs> good, <laughs> to hear that. Good. Um, you know, thinking back on season three, season three, I think, was one of my favorite seasons because in it, we explored the values that we were shaping for ourselves and our relationships. And Paul and I talked a lot about the values we wanted to pass on to our kids based on the universal Christ. Um, it is also, <laughs> Richard, it's also the season when you ran, I'm pretty sure this was either season three or four, I can't remember, but you randomly and consistently dropped Latin phrases. You you would say like, as my teacher said, chippy quam quiste natum stratum or whatever. <laughs> you would just pull well, wasn't these that arrogant? out. Well, I lived in that world for so many years. Yeah. It was How, awesome. <laughs> no, it's arrogant. I'm sorry. No, no, Richard, it's not arrogant. It's awesome. And Paul and I enjoyed it so much that we talked about wanting to make t-shirts out of these Latin phrases, and then we were going to wear them around you just to see if you Please would Please don't. Please don't. <laughs> I wasn't even good at Latin, but anyway. <laughs> it was fabulous, but you know, in that season, it was the ways that you and I and Paul were talking about really desiring uh, integration, to, to find the ways where the values can become vows, that the ways in which they can shape our family rhythms and um, our relationships that for me really defined the arc of our conversations in that season. And I especially remember two episodes that kind of stand out, Jesus and the Empire and the Personal is Political, because it really landed a clear view of 
the necessary participation and agency, um, not just in our personal transformation, which is how I think so many of us tend to think about contemplation, but in social transformation. And it was a real clarion call that you laid out to our broader contemplative community um, that I think, you know, we had all got, we, we had gotten a little bit entrenched in like retreat enlightenment and contemplation as brand rather than recognizing our contemplation is lived out in our choices for justice, for change, um, and for love bearing, you know, a revolutionary creativity. So my question is, Richard, from where you sit, what do you see now as the growing edge for how we think about contemplative practice in our day-to-day lives? What, what is the fruit that you, you think we should most center and look for, um, to see if our our personal practice is bearing fruit in our in our world socially. I'm going to sound like a Christian Eckhart Tolle, but it is my answer. Uh, your ability to uh, surrender in a heartfelt way to the present moment, uh, whatever it offers you, the irritation at the stop sign, the the person who you sort of are turned off by the um the work that's asked of you that you really don't want to do i think parents get the best practice there i must teach you that very well uh, yeah that that gives away every hour how surrendered your heart and your soul are to god when you can okay This isn't what I would have chosen, but I can still either do it or refuse it with grace. I'm not saying it means you always have to do it. But if you can't, you owe a graceful response to the petitioner. Uh, I'm sure you both do that as parents. Now, little boy, uh, (laughs) daddy can't do that. Mommy can't do that right now. Can you wait a few minutes? Uh, yeah, it's all the, the reaction to the present moment is the best possible practice I can think of. Uh, just to keep watching yourself. Um, it's really wonderful because it... In a way, it it frees you from judgmentalism and leads you more toward watchfulness, just watchfulness, awareness. Okay, Dickie, that's my (laughs) warm name about myself from my parents. Uh, You're you're going toward the harsh response uh, to this moment. How about digging a little deeper, and finding the warm response. And, and I honestly do not always succeed at that at all. And I'm just being honest. I'm not trying to appear humble. It's true. <laughs> You've seen my sharp and quick response. I don't, I don't think any of us can succeed at it all the time. Yeah. And that's good, too because then we don't get arrogant about our own supposed perfection or superiority 
We have to fail. We have to fail. Another name for everything will continue in a moment. Is there life after doom? Explore the complexity of hope and grief at our upcoming event, Courage and Resilience, an online gathering with Brian McLaren. Unpack themes from Brian McLaren's new book, Life After Doom. Discover how to find courage, even when everything may feel hopeless. Join us live on May 17th at 10 a.m. Pacific Time. All those who register will have access to the recorded replay for one year. Register at cac.org courage. Explore art as a spiritual practice in the next issue of Wanting, the biannual journal from the Center for Action and Contemplation. Wanting, Art and Spirituality features images and reflections from leading actors and musicians, including Scott Avett, Josh Radner, Lourdes Bernard, and more. Get your copy today at cac.org slash wanningart. That's cac.org slash O-N-E-I-N-G-A-R-T. Have you taken an online course with the Center for Action and Contemplation? Explore the intersection of ancient wisdom and Jesus' teachings in The Divine Exchange, an online course featuring Cynthia Bourgeau. Fully embrace divine interaction each day, starting June 16th. Register today at cac.org slash online dash ed. That's cac.org slash O-N-L-I-N-E dash E-D. I'm so grateful the way that we've been kind of you know, been honing on the personal, then stretching to the corporate and the cosmic and institutional kind of expansion and, and coming back. Um, and I, I, I want to bring up a theme that we talked a lot about that feels very resonant to this conversation in season three, where we talked about uh, willfulness and willingness. And to, to kind of pan out to more of, of corporate and institutional settings, um, I often feel half-hearted about the possibilities of kind of radical institutional change. And uh, I think we see this a lot in politics, we see this a lot in corporate life, where the words are there, but the will and imagination for radical change are lacking. So Richard, I'm curious of what is the role in will or willfulness in addressing institutional evil when the willingness for change feels absent? Wow. That's good. That shows you've been in the right field or you wouldn't ask such a question. I bet a lot of us feel that way today that there doesn't seem to be a a ready attunement to the need to change, the need to... Everybody is so invested in their own opinion. So I guess it takes a little stronger will Stronger will, however, is not the same as willfulness. Willful is, there's a real opinionated pushiness, an inability to entertain the the thought that I could be wrong. There's far too much of that today. And so it, it makes it easy to give up, just give up on all these hard-hearted people, (laughs) as the prophets would probably say. But then I I guess you have to 
recognize uh, at least I do how inclined I am to being hard-hearted and I really am toward hard-hearted people <laughs> I'm very hard-hearted but my hard-heartedness is good is deserved we can't overestimate how almost all of us have been raised to conflate justice with vengeance and when, when those two have been put together all your life, you can hear about the renaming of justice with a title like restorative justice, but you just dig, and most people are still retributive justice. Because that's the way we've used the word in most of history. 99% of history has used history to justify punishment, retribution, even, as you know, the, the cross itself. Penal. Puni penal means punishment. That the Father, God, demanded punishment. Just hear that. That just distorted Christianity at its center. If God demands punishment it's um, takes us all a long time to get out of that uh, forgive me if i've said some of this on previous podcasts i don't know i don't think it's ever the i think the, this is part of the gift of this um of this work and these conversations is that it, you, it never gets old because there's always something new to hear in it. Yeah. And even as I'm listening to you talk about hard-heartedness and that need for punishment, um, I think about how how we self-attack, how we punish ourselves, how we live with this constant flagellation of guilt and shame, you know, for every mistake, for every failure. And then, you know, how that then gets flipped outward you know how we were saying earlier our internal shame becomes external blame and um yeah so i'm really i'm stunned once again to hear you say that you know to think about how much uh that has shaped us not just within christianity but culturally in the west how that worldview has led to so much violence we have work to do we have so much work to do to uproot that and to restore a loving, um, a, a loving paradigm, a loving worldview, an abundant, loving image of God. It's obvious, isn't it? You know, in this same Black History that I was talking about, it's Black History Month. I just saw how within a few years after the Civil War, we reconstructed different ways to limit and punish and shame black people. I mean, it wasn't three years and, okay, they're not slaves, but we're going to make sure they pay for their supposed freedom. It's just, it's just heartbreaking. And then the Jim Crow laws. Huh? And then, I mean, we're talking about the thing still not exposed fully in the 60s, although we thought it was. And now, in our lifetime, the word is white privilege. It, it always keeps 
a, a new nuance, a new cover, a new disguise, so I can be hateful with impunity. <laughs> uh, oh, God must just weep. God must get so tired of it. I bet he can't wait, she can't wait to show mercy to the, um, the merciless lives so many have experienced. I, I watch these pictures on the series on TV and the lined up little black kids, little three-year-olds, already slaves, little six-year-olds, little 10-year-olds standing there in their rags. You say, what mother was capable of taking on that little child as a slave? Ooh, our father, it doesn't matter. I'm really struck by uh, the, the whole slave experience in this country, how it, it was the heart of evil, the total turning around of the gospel, total turning around that some were not the body of Christ. And it was Christians who acted this way. Still is. <laughs> it still is. Yeah, what a, what a sobering call for us now, even as we move forward, for us to ask that question. You know, where are we blind to the heart of evil now? Yeah, alive and yeah. in, our, in, the, in our very midst. As us, you know, yeah. how am I acting into that systemic evil? Yeah, wow. Mm. You're so right. Yeah, it draws me back to what you had said earlier, Richard, about kind of the, the self-examination of the heart and where uh, where the heart is or, or where the mind is limiting the heart's love. And then also reading the energy of the room in situations and systems. It seems like without that kind of continual discernment of spirit that one just tips in the direction of self-interest of um, self-protection and um, there's nothing more no more staggering example i think than uh, the system of slavery and the, the implications for the ongoing american experiment with structures of oppression that um, i think the universal christ taken and in, into the heart has the massive potential for liberation of what it actually means to be a part of the body of Christ and what that actually means for relationships, for how we serve and, and, and treat one another. And, you know, something I know you've mentioned many times on the podcast of the need for lament, the need for mourning, the need for owning what, what our history holds because our history has, is, has not let go mm. of us. It's, it continues to, to, to speak into this moment. And, um, I, I there, there's that great desire in me just to see the United States own its own history of uh, enslavement of people, and also just the way that these structures have continued to to be oppressive um, in that the way. The only so, two countries, Paul, that have ever openly, publicly, honestly, over a period of time exposed their sin are Germany and South Africa. Mm -hmm. No other country has said, we did this <laughs> and we must make amends. But um, that isn't the trajectory of America today. 
to take ownership. It's still to project more negativity onto the black person or any person of color. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, that's one of the 12 steps, isn't it? To make amends. And we're not anywhere close. I'm not talking primarily about finances. I'm talking about heartfelt public lament and apology where we need to ask for forgiveness through our leaders on a broad level. We're nowhere close to that. Heartbreaking, really, and and especially in a country that thinks it's so morally superior. I'm not trying to be anti-American. I'm just following the 12 steps, if that'll make it easier for you to hear it. If you don't remember, it is not healed. It, It cannot be healed. Yeah. Those are powerful words, and... It, to think about the power of something like the 12 steps or these these structures that allow us to kind of create or have a North Star that we can follow. And I, I think in season four, when we talked about the alternative orthodoxy, the, the, the seven themes of that, and how there's a strength in having uh, pillars of guidance that help, help stabilize um, life in a very traumatic, absurd, and chaotic world. Um, and in that conversation that we had in season four, you were very generous in the ways that you made allowances for Bree and I to play with language. I think as we, we tried to fully grasp and understand and try the, the, the themes on in different ways. And I was really struck by that, how in service to that lineage, we were being, uh, playing with the themes to see how they might be best exercised in the here and now. And I'm curious for you when these these are, are are your themes that you've laid down. I know that they're they're a part of the perennial tradition that they've they've been around, but that you've solidified them in your own voice. And yet you are so detached from them. You're so detached from from having them be a certain way. How can you can you share more about how you approach your work in that way where you seem to be untethered to holding on to your work too strongly or your ideas or teachings and, and, and with a strong grasp. You're, you allow them to, to breathe free in the world and serve something larger. How, how have you cultivated that approach to your work? How, I think there's a lot of us who want to learn that kind of posture. How are you so damn we... humble, Richard? Oh, Just... stop it. How are you? There you go. Bree gets right to the heart of it. Well, no, it's it's... I was too often wrong when I, when I stated my opinion in any kind of absolute way, now way, it must happen now, it must be the first priority, uh, and, and I was humiliated too many times by my wrongness. Um, I think these several scares with cancer I've had in the last 15 years, um, always kept me with the awareness that I was near the end, near the end. When you know you're near the end, uh, that's just, I, I think that's the way the human mind goes. Well, it's obviously not, 
incumbent upon me to proclaim the final truth. You know, I'm going to be gone in a few years. And that whole acceptance of death allows you to accept a whole bunch of other things along with it. Uh, that the, the infinite patience of God, you learn to participate in it because you know that the, the arc of justice is slow. Huh? So it all slows down. Uh, so I'm just babbling, I, but it's, I'm just babbling whatever words are coming to my mouth right now to try to understand, uh, because I do think it's true, but it surprises me. Uh, uh, they asked me that in Germany once, so almost 10 years ago. How come you don't seem to care that much about, <laughs> <laughs> about what you teach, whether we believe it or not? And I said, do I come across that way? They, uh, and one said, yeah, too much. You say it and then you... You let go of it. You don't care about your royalties for your books and your and your popularity. That is all true. I'd be lying if I said differently. And yet I'm really invested in saying it. But once it's out there, I believe if it's the word of God, it will do its own work apart from me pushing it. I have no need to push it. And I don't know where that that came from. And, uh, I don't, because I'm still a righteous bastard underneath <laughs> it all. Yeah, I really am. <laughs> but, but in terms of my work and my message, I guess it's a knowledge that it's God's work and God's message mm. and that I'm just the instrument. huh? Once you really believe that, your ego identification with it lessens considerably. Yeah. But it's, it's, it's a grace that's given to you. I didn't accomplish, achieve that grace. Yeah. Thank you for asking it so daringly. Thank you. <laughs> but it, it is so true of you, Richard. Um, that as an instrument, because of your willingness to not become attached to that, it you resonate with that grace so deeply. And it's touched so many of us. Um, you know, I and not to be morbid in any way, but you know, because we began this podcast at a moment when we really didn't know how long you were gonna be around. And, you know, you yeah. thought maybe you had months. I mean, um I think because we've lost so many spiritual greats in the last couple of years, I wanted to have the chance to to ask this question, to reflect on this now, about how we can best honor your legacy in the future. Um, you've often told us at the CAC that the best way to honor you is to love what you love, to not make it about you, um, to allow it to carry on, to move on, to change shape. What are some of the things that you hope our community will remember and feel invited to live out in our own lives when that time comes when you are no longer with us? That powerlessness is good. And that's so counter the, the present American scene 
uh, girl power, white power, black power, boy power, which is all we've ever had, I guess. Um, it, it, it's just something that Western civilization does not want to believe. Um, and if we give in to a search for power, economic, uh, reputational, institutional, they said shortly before Francis died, he was riding on a donkey. He already had the stigmata in his hands and his feet. And a little Italian peasant approached him on the donkey and said, Everywhere I go, Francis, people speak very well of you. Just make sure you are who people say you are. Wow. So powerful. Oh, God. I don't know that I am who people say I am. I, mm. I don't think I am. Hmm. So it's, uh, it's frightening. That, but see, this is the thing that I think you're inviting us into with the teachings of the universal Christ, which is to just, to also, it's, it's to see the inherent dignity, to see the sacred core, but also to see the humanity and to allow and accept that humanity with humility is to say, yeah, I don't really, I, I know I don't live up to my own hype. I'm a right. human being. Right. And yet, isn't it amazing still that God has used me the way that God has, you know? And that's what I see in you, Richard, so clearly in your example in your life. But even I remember, um, you know, as we sit here thinking about the last couple years, it was two years ago that I uh, left being an employee at the CAC and started doing other work in, in Washington, D.C. And I felt so torn up about leaving the nest. <laughs> Well, we were CAC. sad to lose you. Yeah, I was so ahead. sad, you know. But, at the, but I remember you said to me, "No, go," because that means you're you're living this out. You're continuing the work, and you said to me, "Don't let the work stop here at the center. Keep going." And oh, I'm I think glad that's, I said that. Yeah, that's a that's a powerful message, and in, in so many ways, reminiscent of how Jesus said to the disciples, "Go." Go live this out in your own way. Embody this teaching in every yeah. corner of the world in your own way. And so, yes. what, what I feel like you're saying to us is don't let the CAC or the institution become the carrier or the, the container of this truth, but to see ourselves as being the vessels, as the instruments, and to allow the melody to continue to play in our lives wherever we go, whatever we do. Thank you. If, we, if we've got to prop up the CAC, then I don't think it's God's work. If it's God's work, it will prop itself up by its own inherent authority. Yeah, thank you. I love how the message is, is so big, it's uncontainable by just one organization that it has to be held by the entire body. Yes, there you go. As we, you know, start to close here, and um, I'm just curious for the two of you, how, you know, we've been doing this podcast for five seasons. This is the fifth season. What is this this podcast meant to you? The three of us gathering to talk about the universal Christ, to get take questions from the community, to dive into your more recent works of uh, what do we do with the Bible and what do we do with evil, 
and then uh, the alternative orthodoxy, and then the cosmic egg. We've covered a lot of ground, but I'm curious from a kind of a personal note, how, how, what has this podcast meant to you these last few years? I can honestly say I feel so safe with both of you. I know you're not trying to gotcha <laughs> uh, on the message or on me. And so it allows me to to uh, to speak calmly and I hope clearly, which isn't usually true. Uh, I don't know that I've ever done interviews that I get so much positive feedback on the interviewers. And I'm not mm -hmm. trying to flatter the two of you, but people just love you. I, I'm a little disappointed. I go out and they say, oh, aren't Paul <laughs> and Bree wonderful? I say, well, well, I'm wonderful too. <laughs> I just love you. Uh, and it's the energy of your voices, not just the questions you ask. They have a, a right mix of head and heart, it, it feels like. And that's what people are looking for today. The right mix of head and heart, of liberal and conservative, if you will. Uh, so I will remember these as very, uh, uh, feel like my heart was massaged a bit during this time. Uh, that's all that comes to me right now. But uh, so much so that I hope this doesn't hurt your feelings, but Paul would go to such lengths to make sure I got the the questions ahead of time. <laughs> and I don't really look at them because I, <laughs> I'm sorry, because I, I don't need to. I know they'll be intelligent mm. and heartfelt and fair. Mm. I breezed through the the first sentence of each paragraph uh, this morning, but I, I, I just, I, I know you're going to speak well, and you have spoken well. Thank you. This, um, <laughs> the dynamic between us, I think for me, has been uh, a very relational illustration of the trinity of the way you talk about the trinity richard because you know as you're saying there's so much love and trust and vulnerability among the three of us that and i don't know if you guys had this experience but i was so often forget that we're even recording yes. <laughs> and no, because of the love and, and trust that i have with the two of you i'm able to share very vulnerably about my own questions and um you know the, the kitchen floor moments that i've had in my life um and i think it only serves to under underscore for me richard this epistemology of love that you talk about that it really is only in relationship and relating that we're able to really know. It's a different kind of knowledge because it's not from the head. It's not top down. It's not commanding. It's not didactic. It's, it's, it's this way of receptivity of the heart that can just hold and resonate with instead of needing to, you know, ha have, have an orthodoxy to, to grab onto. 
Um, and you've always modeled this, Richard, by saying, you know, don't take my word for it. See if this is true in your life and in your relationships. Um, and I think this journey for me has helped to really solidify for me how powerful relationships are as a path for deeper insight, meaning, and just to animate our desire to keep going. I mean, I think you have both held a particular post in my life that has been exceedingly precious and very special. So I just, I want, want to say how grateful I am that, that um, you both uh, gave me so much room to talk. I know we got, <laughs> Richard, I don't know if you know this, but we got, <laughs> we got some mail about how much I talk. <laughs> Oh, from my sisters. <laughs> it's one of the last things my sister said before she died. Who's that? No way. Who's that woman who talks so much and and, <laughs> and talks oh over my, my dear little brother? <laughs> that is amazing. <laughs> I'm so happy that I made it just, in that. some final words from your sister. <laughs> wasn't on her deathbed, but in oh the last gosh. months, you know. <laughs> uh, but in all seriousness, you know, I think uh, thank you both for for. Uh, allowing me to express the questions of my own heart in my own, you know, long-winded and rab- rambling way. Um, I'm so grateful to have been on on this journey with the two of you, and I continue to learn from both of you so much. And I know that that learning will only uh, carry on into the future. But I I couldn't let this moment go by without saying, you know, thanks for letting a woman speak. <laughs> now it's been too long. <laughs> Since we did, you know, <laughs> if we ever did. Uh, thanks. I, I, I resonate with so much of what you both have said. And um, the joy it's been to, to circle up like this, even even though, Richard, you just admitted you weren't reading our questions beforehand. Uh, well, we'll, we'll, we'll bear that, that bruise. Um, not at all. I think the joy has been in, in so much of the way that the questions have naturally unfolded out of the moment out of the own the, the prompting of the spirit and um i'm just so grateful that we were able to, to have this chance to circle the universal christ so many times in so many different ways um not only to 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 sharpen our own uh approach to living deeper into the contemplative heart but also to to share that with a, a listening community who's eager to uh, apply this and, and grow and transform in their own context. Um, so yeah, I, I feel like uh, the the luckiest boy at the dance to be able to have been a part of this. Um, and Richard, we were wondering if we could close out this podcast by having you read Derek Walcott's poem, Love After Love. There are so many levels of truth in this poem. Each time I read it, to be honest, I'm still not sure I fully understand it, which brings me back to reading it again mm. and again. Yeah. Derek Walcott's poem, Love After Love. The time will come when with elation you will greet yourself arriving at your own door in your own mirror. And each will smile at the other's welcome. 
I mean, he could have stopped right there. <laughs> you say, sit here, eat. You will love again the stranger who was yourself. Give wine, give bread, give back your heart to itself, to the stranger who has loved you. I think we're supposed to imagine, who is this stranger? There's got to be several correct answers. All your life whom you ignored for another who knows you by heart. Take down the love letters from the bookshelf, the photographs, the desperate notes. Peel your own image from the mirror where it's stuck. Sit. Feast on your life. Oh, my goodness. That is so consoling for me. I, I don't even know fully why. But I hope it and all we've said here is consoling for you. Okay, thank you, good souls, good hearts, good bodies, <laughs> good minds. God bless you. And that's it for today's episode of Another Name for Everything with Richard Rohr. This podcast is produced by the Center for Action and Contemplation, thanks to the generosity of our donors. The beautiful music you're listening to was brought to you by Will Reagan. If you're enjoying this podcast, consider rating it, writing a review, or sharing it with a friend to help create a bigger and more inclusive community. To learn more about Father Richard and to receive his free daily meditations in your electronic mailbox, visit cac.org. To learn more about the themes of the Universal Christ, visit universalchrist.org. From the high desert of New Mexico, we wish you peace and every good. Do you feel called to walk a more contemplative path? The Center for Action and Contemplation is an educational nonprofit supporting the journey of inner transformation. Our programs and resources will help grow your consciousness, deepen your prayer practice, and strengthen your compassionate engagement with the world. Learn more about our resources, such as publications, podcasts, email series, and events at www.cac.org.